It's the Blues Rock Show with Pete Francis and Willie Witten. Welcome to the Blues Rock Show. I'm Pete Francis, joined by Willie Witten. Today, our special guest is the founder and president of Alligator Records, Bruce Iglauer, an alligator celebrating 50 years, which is incredible. Bruce, thanks so much for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for thanks for inviting me. I can't believe it's 50 years either. Yeah, that's amazing. And what else is amazing is you founded Alligator Records when you were just 23 years old, which is pretty ambitious for a 23-year-old. So why did you decide at that age, hey, I'm going to start up a record label? Well, I was working for a record label. I was working for the Delmark label, uh, which is still you know, my roots. And uh, Bob Kester, the founder of Delmark, is my father figure and mentor, who I will always honor because I'll always walk in his shadow. I was, I had a very exalted position at Delmark. I was the shipping clerk and, uh, you know, including unloading trucks, loading trucks, you know, sweeping the floor, other exciting things. I was going every night to the blues clubs on the South side and the West side of Chicago in the black neighborhoods. That was where all the blues was at that time. And I went one Sunday afternoon and saw Hound Dog Taylor and the house rockers at Florence's lounge. And I fell in love with the band. It was just the most fun music I had ever heard. I'd never seen uh, three guys uh, just have that much unleashed joy in playing music together. Two guitars and a set of drums, not even a bass player. And I went back to my boss and I said, you have to record this band. This is a great band. This is a band that makes you grin constantly. You know, this is not sad blues. And I could not talk him into it. He had seen Hound Dog sitting in, which was generally a disaster. And so uh, I couldn't talk him into it. I kept trying. And finally, I thought, well, if he's not going to do it, I'm going to start a record label to record my favorite band. And the cool part is that 50 years later, I have a record label to record my favorite bands. Let me ask. So once again, 23 years old, you're going to branch out from Delmark, which even if it wasn't that glorious, was something that was there. Yes. Were there a couple times when as you're starting Alligator, doing this on your own, huge risk, you thought that, you know what, this might not pan out. And also, when was the moment when it finally occurred to you that, you know what, I think this has turned the corner and this is going to work? Well, I can tell you that between 1971, when I started the label, and about 1978, every single day, I thought this could collapse. You know, this I started with $2,500 which was a ridiculously small amount of money. I had nothing else, no backup, no you know, angel with, uh, with big pockets or a bag of money hiding in my closet. So everything had to work. And you know, I had a great band. I had a record that I had made in eight hours, direct to two track, and would manage to sell quite a bit of that one relative to the blues market, uh, about eight or 9,000 the first year, which was way more than what Delmark was selling, for example. And I had enough money to make a second record, but if I couldn't sell the second record, I couldn't make a third record, and I couldn't make a third record, I, or sell a third record, I couldn't make a fourth record. So it was like that until about 1978. And I didn't even uh, get a, a full-time employee till about that time. I was the whole company. So I was the record label, the music publisher, the booking agent for the artists, the manager for the artists, the publicist for the artists, the radio promotion man for the artists, and often the roadie for the artists. Uh, I had two 
very successful relative to the blues world records. Uh, I had Coco Taylor's second album, the earth shaker that included I'm a woman, which is uh, an anthem for that. She wrote that it's become an anthem for blues women everywhere. And uh, the first album by Albert Collins, ice Pickin', uh, which was the first time that I had brought a non-Chicago artist to the label. And <clears throat> the first time, contrary to what people think Coco's reputation was not that huge. Uh, at, at that time, uh, she had had a moment in the 60s, but she was uh, a struggling artist. But Albert was pretty well known. And so with those two albums, I thought, okay, I think there's a future for this company. And so you guys celebrate the anniversary with 50 years of genuine house rock and music. Oh, yeah, I could do the official plug here. I'll hold up the product. There you go. So you put out the album. But how difficult is it to kind of decide, okay, this is what we're going to put on an album when you've got 50 years of history to choose from? <laughs> you mean like pick your favorite children? Yeah, pretty uh, much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was very difficult. It took me about three months to choose the tracks. And then even though I know a lot of people, you know, li listen uh, with shuffle and don't listen in, in the order, I still sequence as though people listened in order. So I wanted not only to choose the right songs, but the right sequence and make the transitions feel good. So it was a, a good listening experience from beginning to end. And it's three CDs. So the, the first CD was pretty easy because it was the artists who are the ones most closely associated with the label, like Hound Dog Taylor, like Coco Taylor, like Albert Collins, like Lonnie Brooks, um, Little Ed and the Blues Imperials. The third CD is primarily artists who are presently with the company. Um, and I wanted to showcase them because that's the future. Um, and, and so uh, that was, let's see, oh, I can't remember. Uh, I think 19 tracks, yeah, 19 tracks of, of contemporary, 18 tracks of, of, let's call them heritage artists or legendary artists. And then in the middle was the real tough one because I was choosing between artists who maybe weren't as famous uh, as some of the others, uh, and sometimes artists who didn't sell very well, but I loved their music. And sometimes it was just a matter of people need to hear this song or people need to hear this artist. But every, for every artist I chose, uh, I was of course deciding not to include another artist. And, and that was tough. So, so we ended up with uh, about 230 minutes of music everything I could cram onto three CDs, uh, no, no wasted space. And uh, I'm, look, I'm looking at my song list. Um, and most of the artists had more than one alligator release, but there are a few that uh, were just one-off projects that I felt so strongly about that I wanted to share them. Bruce, when it comes to talent scouting, and getting new artists for the label. How active of a process is that? Are you actively seeking these artists or is it more so sometimes you just stumble across an artist and say, hey, I wanna work with them? It goes all different ways. Uh, I still get demos and submissions and I try to listen to them or now look at them because of YouTube, um, as many as I can anyway. Uh, I get very backed up and most of what's submitted to me frankly is not of the quality I'd want to sign an artist. Now, some of it's okay. I'm not saying it's bad, but, but it's not at that special level. I 
until the pandemic, I would go out live to see artists live all the time. Uh, and I very much uh, make decisions about who I'm going to sign based at least in large part on their live performance, because I need artists who not only can make great music, but who can communicate with an audience. Uh, you know, this music is, is above all a live communication music. It's created by the audience and the artist together. You know, it, it, it's the, art, the audience is feeding the artist, the artist is feeding the audience. It's not created like so many pop records where people are sitting in their bedrooms with a synthesizer, you know, trying to come up with a cute hook. Um, and, and so I, I watch live performance a lot. Um, I have spies all over the country who tell me about artists that I ought to hear. Uh, and I also have one of my employees who's assigned, at least as part of her job, to scour the internet for people we might not have heard of. Uh, so I, I'm looking and listening all the time. Now, we keep a pretty small roster. You know, typically we have 14 to 17 artists, active artists on the label, uh, most of whom are touring. And that's a big part of the reason we don't have more because we promote and publicize every single date that every artist does, regardless of whether the artist has a new release. And I don't know any other label that does that, big or small. So we've got thousands of gigs every year we have to get the word out on. So we can't have a roster of 30 artists because each of them would be poorly served. So 14 to 17 is about right. And a few of them, you know, uh, Elvin Bishop doesn't do a lot of live dates, but he's a legendary name. Uh, and uh, we, can, we can do okay with him. I mean, we love his music, of course. We can do okay with him as a commercial proposition because he's well enough known. But for somebody um, like uh, Christone Kingfish Ingram or Toronzo Cannon, you know, every single live date is, is a point at which more people are going to discover the artist. And we have to make those successful. Um, How did you discover and, Kingfish? Well, Kingfish was actually uh, pretty well known in the blues world, in the, at least in the, in the you know, very uh, small, we all talk to each other blues world. Uh, he had been performing since he was a fairly young teenager uh, on little small stages at the King Biscuit Festival in Arkansas and uh, at clubs in Clarksdale. So some blues tourists had seen him. And there was a lot of buzz because he was clearly very good, even at 14 and 15 years old. His debut album, just called Kingfish, which we released in 2019, uh, was recorded when he was still 18. And, and his new album, uh, 662, was recorded when he was 21. Uh, so the word was out about him. I used to go see him sometimes on stages with 10 or 20 people in the audience. And he was clearly a, a, a very talented guitar player, but at that time he didn't have original material and he was playing too many notes and he would agree with me that he was playing too many notes. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's guitar player youth disease and some people get over it and some people don't. But one of my expressions is about musicians I really like is they know what the important notes are. And it took him, he, he learned what the important notes were very young, but still, you know, not at 14, what just what you'd expect i mean i didn't understand any of that stuff when i was 14 why should he uh but he matured very quickly so i had seen him there was a lot of buzz around him he was also doing uh performances with uh, a charity organization called united by music which is run by some friends of mine and brings together people who are either um 
physically or mentally challenged. Uh, you know, some people, I mean, one of their, their best uh, artists, one of their most talented artists is, is a, a, a girl, well, a young woman who is in a wheelchair and will be for the rest of her life. And also whatever her particular challenge is, she's, she's the size of, you know, maybe a 12 year old or a 10 year old. She hasn't grown to the, the full size of a woman and I guess she won't. So he's been performing with them as a side band, accompanying these people who are often very talented, but who are never gonna get a chance to express themselves as, as live performers. Uh, or professional musicians because of the challenges they face. And he's doing that out of the goodness of his heart. And that told me a lot about him as well. Uh, so when I, actually when Kingfish came to the label and you know, these days he's, he's probably our most successful artist and with this new album is clearly gonna be much more successful. Um, it actually came to me as a finished master. I, I didn't produce the record or have any input in it Tom Hambridge, the Grammy-winning producer who's worked with, amongst many people, Buddy Guy, uh, produced it. Buddy played on it. And in fact, it's a little unclear to me what happened, but apparently behind the scenes, I think Buddy may have helped with the financing, the original financing of the recording. And he certainly lent his services for free uh, because he's a mentor, because he, he sees Kingfish as walking in his footsteps, and he should. You know, he's a huge influence. And uh, so I, I was brought this record uh, by Kingfish by that time, made a professional manager and a lawyer. And it was a really, really tough, long negotiation. I knew I wanted the record, but boy, did they make it hard for me. And it wasn't Kingfish who did this. It was the people around him who he entrusted to take care of his business. And if I were in his shoes, I would say, okay, if they, made, if they put the record company through the ringer, they did a good job. You know, from my point of view, I felt like I went through the ringer. <laughs> so uh, he's, but he's, he's a terrific guy to work with. I should also say about Kingfish, he's just, I would say, completely unspoiled by all of this uh, fame that he's gotten. You know, he's still just a regular guy. I still think of him as a kid, although he's, you know, he's 22 now. Uh, he's direct and he's, doesn't try to be slick or sophisticated. You know, he grew up in a small town. He's proud of that. He's, he gets on stage and he talks to you like you're in his living room. Yeah, the few times that I've had a chance to, to get to meet him and talk to him, I've definitely noticed that he's very humble. He is, and he appreciates his roots very much. You know, when I'm looking at artists for Alligator, I always want people who are proud of being part of the tradition not necessarily who want to duplicate the tradition, but who feel like there are these giants behind them and that they are trying to carry on the legacy of, of musicians who made timeless statements uh, and created music that continues to move people, even if maybe they aren't on the face of the earth anymore. Um, now, I don't want artists who are going to do imitations of those people. And I don't want... Uh, somebody who gets up and does a note for note Muddy Waters, because I saw Muddy Waters. And no matter how good you are, you're never going to beat him doing Muddy Waters. I want people who say, okay, Sunhouse made, it was an inspiration for Muddy Waters. And Muddy Waters came to Chicago and plugged in and electrified the music and took that legacy of Sunhouse and made it his own 
and made contemporary statements for an audience at that time. So I want musicians who are looking and saying, okay, B.B. King or Albert King or Freddie King or Sun Seals or any number of other musicians made important timeless statements for their era. Now inspired by them, I want to do the same thing for my era. So Bruce, what I gather, and I think anyone who listens to the Alligator Artists gather this too, that there's a lot of emphasis based on doing it the right way. Looking back, having the roots, but looking forward. And so to shift gears a bit, I want to ask about all the changes in the music industry, because it would be inaccurate to say that Alligator Records is old fashioned. Sure, you guys like to keep the quality high and you have that roots in live music. But at the same time, you guys have always been on the forefront of the technological changes, whether it was jumping to cassettes, eight tracks, CDs. So what I want to ask you, Bruce, is with everything that's changed, with the advent of streaming and now so much social media, how do you keep on top of all of it? And then also, is there a specific technology that you think is or medium that is going to be the most dominant in progressing music over this next decade? Well, the last part of the question is the easiest to answer because the industry in general thinks that access to music and streaming music is basically going to replace owning music, uh, either in the form of downloads, which are definitely doomed because why should you download an MP3 if you can stream an MP3? Uh, I personally, you know, I grew up owning music. Uh, I like owning a car. I like owning books. I like owning music, but I have grandkids and I see that they are used to accessing everything there, you know, we, we, we subscribe to Netflix or, you know, Amazon prime or whatever. We're used to accessing movies and TV shows. That doesn't seem at all unusual. Well, people are getting used to accessing music and, and that's the way it's going to be. Uh, yes, we've tried to be, uh, you know, on the, on the cutting edge. I've tried to pay attention to technology. Uh, and you're one of the few people who knows we put out eight tracks. So uh, you, you get points for that uh, and singles, uh, you know, if, 45s, uh, which didn't do well, but we tried them. Um, and, uh, and probably, you know, I would have done, uh, you know, I don't know, uh, aluminum cylinders like Thomas Edison, whatever, whatever. <laughs> I never thought we'd go back to vinyl. That was a complete surprise to me. But we got in the CD business very early. And I have to say that as a producer, and, and I only produce some albums on Alligator, certainly not all of them. I've produced about produced or co-produced about 120 albums over my career, uh, which isn't bad for a guy who can't read music. Uh, but uh, CDs come closest to sounding like what we intended in the studio. Uh, vinyl, you know, I understand the charm of vinyl. And of course, I love the packaging. Uh, but vinyl doesn't carry all the high end and all the low end that you can hear on a CD. Uh, or that you can hear in the studio. Uh, that's one of the reasons it sounds warm to people because it's got a lot of mid-range. Uh, and you can mix to have a lot of mid-range. But the main thing I like about vinyl is, and I'm going to reach over here and do shameless self-promotion. We also did a two CD or two LP version of this with 24 of the best tracks. And you know, just, like, just like what I grew up with. And, uh, and I understand the charm of vinyl and understand why people want to collect vinyl. But 
in terms of what things sound like, CDs still sound more accurate. Uh, but that nobody's asking me. Uh, and, and CDs are probably ultimately a dying technology, especially because you can't get a CD player in a car anymore and you can't get it built into your computer anymore. Uh, the portability was so much of the appeal of CDs. So I'm resigned to the fact that it's going to be streaming services. And, you know, streaming services notoriously pay very little per stream. You know, you've got to build up literally millions of streams uh, to make it the income significant. I mean, they're, they're paying such microscopic bits of pennies that you'd literally have to, you know, put them under a magnifying glass and push them around with the tweezers to add up to real money. And, and it's been a struggle. Uh, you know, our, our income as a company is, you know, we got murdered by illegal downloading at, at, at around 1999, 2000, like the whole industry did. Then we slowly rebuilt when legal downloads started. And then we got murdered by the economic collapse of 2008, 2009. And then we rebuilt from that. And then streaming came along and lowered our income again. So we're not nearly as big dollar-wise as we were in the, at the end of the 1990s. And that's been an accommodation we've had to deal with. Um, would, would the focus for a label then now be to just have as big of a library as possible so you can get those extra streams? Because I imagine starting a record label now would be so difficult if you don't have an already pre-existing library of music. That's a very good question. Uh, and certainly we're helped by our catalog, but I have to say the streaming services for the most part have ignored uh, what I call adult music not only blues, but jazz, classical, folk, world music, they've been very hit driven. And so of course, what you really want if you're gonna do well with streaming service is a giant hit. Uh, and they're very hard to get. We've never tried for them. Uh, and we'd probably do really badly if we did. Um, so in our case, yes, our catalog helps us a great deal. Um, but the streaming services still for the most part pay more attention to new releases. I've sat and broken down every, uh, I've done a spreadsheet of every artist in the catalog and the categories they fit in because the people who are doing the playlists on the streaming services for the most part aren't very knowledgeable. So I try my best to educate them like you know, the people who are watching this are already educated. Uh, so they know that Cephas and Wiggins are Piedmont blues and come from the Virginia and the Carolinas. And, and they know that Albert Collins uh, came out of Texas and that there's a Texas guitar style. Uh, but I have to tell them these things. It's really hard to explain to them who Michael Hill's blues mob is or who Floyd Dixon is or was, I should say. Uh, and, and to get them to pay attention because they're kind of groping their way through this. You know, uh, Spot Spotify, Apple Music, and and Amazon's uh, Music Unlimited, the biggest three streaming services, along with YouTube, have nobody curating playlists uh, who know really knows about blues. Their blues is always a side issue, a side genre for them. So, uh, Bruce, then I guess my <clears throat> my next question would be: Obviously, you stated that just the lack of knowledge, but with blues being sort of relegated to the side, how do you think that blues can push itself back 
into the mainstream, or if not mainstream, at least with a little more resonance with the modern streaming audience? Well, trying to get booze outside of the, the blues ghetto, you know, the, the, those of us who get up every day and listen to blues almost 100% of the time just for our own pleasure, and trying to reach new listeners has been my battle through my entire career. You know, I started a golden moment for American radio during that, that little minute of progressive freeform FM radio that included blues along with rock and jazz and lots of other things. That went away pretty quickly. Um, and we're, we're really struggling to find stations uh, online or, uh, or terrestrial stations, old-time old radio, that will mix music, different genres of music together and will introduce people to new music. And one of the problems the streaming services have is that generally you're going to listen to somebody you've heard of or somebody you already know. But, but other than Pandora, which I think you know, does, does a good job in creating music discovery, there aren't a lot of music discovery mechanisms built into the streaming services. But this is something they're talking about because they want subscribers. So they want more and more customers. Uh, and, and discovery is one way they may be able to get them. Uh, but it's, it's definitely an uphill battle and it's going to continue to be, you know, the music we love is grown up music. It's full of grown up emotions. It's not, you know, it, it, <laughs> every, everybody who's been, been through the ringer a little bit in life knows that relationships between men and women, or if you prefer men and men or women and women, I'm not, not picking on anybody, um, are very tough to maintain, you know, and, and there's usually a lot of disappointment. And generally pop music doesn't talk about that very much. Pop music is by its nature, sentimental music, or these days it's often just get up and dance music. Blues talks about loving and losing and talks about realities of life and real emotions. So kids aren't gonna be drawn to it very much because it, Blues knows that there are no simple solutions in life. Uh, and I don't know that we're ever going to attract, you know, a bunch of 16-year-olds. But I don't know when you guys were converted to, to blues, but my moment of revelation came when I was 18. And, you know, it's been that way ever since. Uh, and, and young adulthood is a typical time when people discover blues. We work so hard with Sirius XM who, by the way, are really nice people and trying hard to do good programming. Uh, and, and we are, um, we are, uh, and we are, are uh, trying very hard to get them to mix genres of music. Um, and, and we've had trouble doing that, but we're still fighting that battle. Well, Bruce, it's been really great having you on the show today. Before we let you go, any final thoughts, anything else you want to add? Well, I hope people will keep exploring and keep listening to artists who are on the way up. Uh, I keep looking for artists who have a vision of carrying the blues into the future. Uh, and I would mention, besides Kingfish, I would mention uh, Shabika Copeland, who's doing a lot of topical blues songs now. And I would mention Toronto Cannon, and I would mention Selwyn Birchwood, all of whom are trying to write blues that isn't about 
just the subject you've heard blues songs being about and trying to explore the medium and do something more than uh, just repeat what's been done. Um, but it's a deep, deep well. You know, I, I discover old records all the time that are, are wonderful that I should have heard of after, after 50 years in the blues and I'm still finding out about them. Absolutely. So it's, 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 it's a lifelong pursuit. You won't get tired of it. For sure. Well, congratulations on 50 years. Thanks so much for joining us today. Sure. Thanks for inviting me. Appreciate it. All right. That's going to wrap up this week's edition of the Blues Rock Show. For Willie Whitten and Bruce Iglauer, I'm Pete Francis. We'll see you next time.